0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Iwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Jean Kwok. I, where do I even start with you? So The Leftover Woman is out now, searching for Sylvie Lee, obviously massive hit and hardcover, continues to live in paperback, but Girl in Translation is the book that sort of put you out in the world, and we're going to come back to Girl in Translation, and there was also Mambo in Chinatown, and I don't. It seems like lots of people have forgotten Mambo in Chinatown, and we're going to go back to that. But let's talk about The Leftover Woman first, because <laughs> we have to stay away from spoilers. We just, I'm sorry, we have to stay away from
1: spoilers. We we do, we do. But Miwa, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. I am
0: thrilled and honored to be here. Well, honored, I um, do you know. Yes, we're, we're totally. Just gonna, okay, here's the thing. We're going to gab about your book, and we're going to see where the conversation takes us. But you and I were talking about this book Right as Sylvie Lee was coming out, when did you start working on this? I started thinking about it, actually,
1: probably even before Sylvie Uh Lee came out. And I remember running this idea by you because, of course, you were the goddess goddess of books and authors. And you were like, oh, that sounds
0: really intriguing. I did like the idea. I still like the idea. I think it's a great idea.
1: (laughs) You did. You did. And that was kind of, you know, every writer, you need that little boost of faith sometimes it's like the pebble that tips it over you know the, the i I don't talk to a lot of people about my books i talked to almost no one before uh, inception because of course it's so delicate uh, but you're one of the few people that i do run ideas by and you were like oh that sounds awesome can hit so many different layers of meaning and plot and issues and so i was like okay I can write this. It's got the MIWA seal of approval. I can write this
0: book. Yikes. Well, it's not just me. I mean, you have a fabulous team at William Morrow, and there's some other folks who now know you because of Sylvie Lee. So there are a lot of us rooting for you. But we are going to talk sort of in a little bit of an elliptical conversation again, because we're not. We've got, you know, a couple of women and a child and some men, some of whom are good and some of whom are not so good. But it is Layers upon layers upon layers. It's an immigrant story. It's a story of marriage and family and what you get and what you can't. And where do we start without giving anything away?
1: (laughs) Well, I I guess we could start with the pitch, which is that it is two mothers, Mm -hmm. two worlds, and one impossible choice, right? So, as you know, The Leftover Woman is about what happens when a young Chinese woman named Jasmine. It's told that her baby died shortly after birth and she grief stricken, she mourns, but then she finds out that her daughter had not died, but actually been given away for adoption to a wealthy American couple by her own husband, you know, a casualty of China's one child policy. And when the book opens, she has followed her daughter to New York City to get her back
0: and we're going to leave out some of the details of Jasmine's experience in New York because the way you pull together these two storylines is really it's very clever but there's a little bit of publishing send up i mean we're not quite in yellowface rf kwong territory but there were some moments where i was laughing maybe a little harder than <laughs> you might expect and i think you know exactly <laughs> what i'm talking about but when did you decide to pull in publishing the way you did
1: well so indeed um the book is told in two points of view right from the birth mother jasmine yang's point of view and from the adoptive mother rebecca whitney's point of view and rebecca is indeed a high level publishing executive and you know i have to say from the very beginning i knew she was in publishing because i just thought it's so fun To talk about publishing and, uh, you know, it's obviously something I'm obsessed with and know quite a bit about. Rebecca is, of course, extreme in that she is not only in publishing, but she's also comes from a very wealthy family. And so, you know, not that people should think that all publishing executives live (laughs) in the penthouse on Park Avenue, but Rebecca does. And, you know, Ben, there there is a kind of old school publisher that Mm -hmm. really did come from money. That was the kind of thing that you did. It's one of the acceptable fields um, to go into. And so it was really fun to write Rebecca because she is, you know, she's flawed just like Jasmine is. She is privileged in a lot of ways and doesn't know her own privilege, but she's also a good egg. Deep Mm -hmm. down, she really is. And she really loves
0: her adopted child. Yeah. And both of these women have very distinct, very complex character arcs. And uh, here I go dancing around stuff again. But uh, (laughs) the way they intersect is not something I'd actually seen before. So I was really kind of excited to see that you had thrown in a pretty big twist early on. So if you're mapping out, right? Because this is a really different book from Girl in Translation, right? Like that, that was based on your personal story. But also what you were doing with the language there and, and contrasting how native Chinese speakers experience the world versus, you know, learning English versus English speakers, et cetera, Or native-born English speakers, I should say. And here we've got kind of a straight up what's going to happen. I mean, do we call this a thriller? Do we have to put a <laughs> label on it? Can you just call it a really fun propulsive read?
1: Well, you know, I I don't know about labels. What I thought was really fun about writing this book is that it can be read, The Leftover Woman can be read as a propulsive, suspenseful family drama, just based on plot alone. But what I found interesting to do is that that big plot twist, you know, there is a really (laughs) big twist in it. Yes. It's, you know, it's a genre plot twist, right? It's one that you find in Commercial fiction sometimes, but it's used in this book in a really literary way, I think, Mm -hmm. because it's actually used to depict the white gaze. Like it's actually a way to represent how we see people from the inside and from the outside. Mm -hmm. And I think that readers who have finished the book will know what I mean if they really think deeply about the twist. It's not a twist just for the twist's sake, it's a twist. That is saying something about the way we perceive immigrants, women, people of color, um, and the way we don't perceive them. You know, it's about women and being seen and how mm-hmm. women are seen um, sometimes and sometimes not. And sometimes seen for the physical attributes or not seen at all because of class, money, whatever.
0: And also how they see themselves. I mean, the women, exactly. It's it's really... It's refreshing to see that, you know, there's a little bit of doubt in places where you wouldn't necessarily expect it. And some people's moms are meaner than they might look on the outside and things like that. When you were sitting down, obviously, you know, you've got the two moms, you know, you've got the daughter. And, you know, there are men who roll in and out, um, a couple of husbands. One's terrible, one's not. There's a very nice dude. there Lots of nice things, happen, but we don't but, know. We're not sure who's who, right? Well, and that's For a while. That's, that's why I'm leaving names off. <laughs> that's why we're not talking <laughs> I love about you. names? But it's a really tight cast. It's a it, really, really tight cast.
1: I have to tell you, meanwhile, when I was writing this book, there were many versions of it. And oh, seriously, it, yes, there were so many versions because it's an impossible dilemma, right? It's mm-hmm. you have two. I have set it up with two moms mm-hmm. that yep. actually genuinely. Love one child and want the best for that child and are desperate to have that child and to keep that child in their lives. So, how do you resolve that? Right? It's my job as the author to try to find some kind of resolution that, you know, I think is resonant and meaningful and not too, let's say, extreme black and white one way or another. And so, in the manipulation of all the characters and the plot lines and the themes of this book, I have to tell you, me what, at one point, Everyone was, like, in bed with each other, in jail, or dead. Like, really, I think I killed off yeah, everyone no, in some version um, of the book. It was like, oh, he's evil. No, 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 maybe she's evil. No, maybe he, we don't think he'll be evil, but let's say he's evil. What do right, think? Right, right. So that is the fun thing about the book is that, believe me, if you don't know, uh, the reader doesn't know, it's because I did not know, you know, in the <laughs> final version, I mean, it all works out, you right. know, well, and in the way I really wanted to. There were, you know, there were a lot of very extreme variations during the writing of this book. Mm.
0: Okay, so I want to go back to something you've said in earlier interviews where you're like, you know, I'm not sure I would have been a working writer if I hadn't gotten an MFA. And lots of writers have different journeys where we are. I just want to stay at the top of it and just say, not everyone needs an MFA. It's just, I love of I no. this piece of Jean's conversation, which is why we're talking about MFAs for a second. But I just, I want to explore that for a second because there has been sort of a shift a little bit across the four books, right? Like Girl in Translation came out, what, 2010? Yeah, that's it's right. It's been a minute. Okay. So four books over 13 years, which is quick.
1: Well, for a literary novelist. I mean. Yeah,
0: it's 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 quick. But what do you mean when you say you don't think you would have been a working writer if you hadn't gotten an MFA?
1: Well, I definitely don't mean that everyone should get an MFA or that you need to get an MFA to be a working writer, because I think that um, it's really a lot of money. And, you know, I came out, I have no family support. You know, as you know, I was incredibly poor as a child, um, really working class immigrant family. And so, you know, that debt had to be paid off and it's a real huge burden. So that's not something to be underestimated. I mean, you're not getting like an MBA, like where you're going to come out and earn like a ton of money. You're going to a very uncertain field, uh, wanting to be an artist and wanting to be a writer. So it's not for everyone. I definitely don't think it's necessary for everyone. But for me, you know, I think, you know, because I come from a background where we really were working class and I worked in a factory as a child, I lived in an unheated apartment in Brooklyn for most of my childhood. My main goal in life was actually to, um, you know, have a job and have a heated apartment in New York City. (laughs) That was really all all I wanted. That was like my only dream. And it wasn't really until I miraculously found myself at Harvard that I realized, okay, maybe I won't be sent back to the clothing factory in Chinatown to work for the rest of my life. Maybe I can do what I really want to do, which is to be a writer. And so I, of course, was really passionate and dedicated about being a writer, but I did not know how I did not know how, and I didn't know how to carve out the time for it. You have to make ends meet I was working like all the time. And Going to the MFA program at Columbia, it just gave me those two years to write and to think about writing and to be among writers and to recognize that writing is a real thing that a person could do. It's a real life that you can pursue. And for me, that was what was so important. I mean, as in terms of, you know, my development over four books from Girl in Translation to The Leftover Women, I think that, you know... Definitely, my structures have become more complex, as you can see from the intricate structure of the leftover women, which I hope still reads seamlessly. But in order for me to make it work, there was a lot of plotting of time and, you know, I have timelines and graphs and everything day by day so that I make sure that actually it all does work um, in the real world. But I think that my obsessions have remained the same. You know, I think from Girl in Translation to Mambo in Chinatown, to Searching for Sylvie Lee, to The Leftover Women, I'm talking about race, women, language. And you mentioned in Girl in Translation, I play with language as I do in Searching for Sylvie Lee, where when one person is thinking in Chinese and they don't speak English, the reader doesn't speak English as well. You know, the words are like in italics. In, I mean, I'm still, Still playing with language in The Leftover Woman, because we see Jasmine, in Jasmine's narration, she's thinking in Chinese. And yet, in the parts of the book where we see her from the outside, she is a completely different person, and her English is far from perfect. So we are still shuttling back and forth um, in language in that way.
0: Yeah, I have to say the few times that I really noticed that she was speaking... I I was taken aback because I was so used to being in her head, knowing full well that she's speaking in Chinese, mind you, but at the same time, the, the fluidity of her thinking and her expression and everything else. And then, you know, she's speaking to someone in English and it's like, oh, right, right, because I also tend not to hear people's accents. I mean, I just, I grew up around a lot of non-native English speakers. And I remember people saying to me when I was younger, they're like, your mom has an accent. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, And I grew up in a place where people really had accents. And I'm like, what? (laughs) No. And yeah, she probably did. if I think about it hard enough, but like, I just don't hear it at all. And it's wild to suddenly have that moment where you can see someone living. And it's something I love in books, right? Like, this whole idea of living in translation. And right. what does that mean and how do you belong and where do you fit and everything else and how do you translate yourself? Right? It's not just the language. And we see this both in Jasmine and Rebecca. Whether or not we agree with what they're doing, we understand why they're doing it. But how much fun did you have mapping this out? I mean, I understand that you've also got to like do the work and make sure all of the plot lines work, but you got to hang out with some pretty interesting folks. Yeah, no,
1: it was it was a blast. And I love what you just said about language and translating ourselves because one of the big themes in all of my books is indeed how our interior self is so different from our exterior right. self. And how, you know, a person like Jasmine and like Ma in Searching for Sylvie Lee, who, when we're in their chapters and they're thinking in Chinese, has such a complex, deep, profound you know, way of looking at the world that we're totally absorbed by. And then you switch out of their POV and you see them from the outside and you realize, oh my God, she looks and seems completely, sounds completely different. And I think, I mean, I think it's great that you don't hear accents, but people do, you know. No, I know I'm a weirdo. (laughs) Well, no, as a person who used to have an accent, you know, as a first generation immigrant, I really struggled with that mm. accent and my my family, my entire family has accents and you see people judge you and oh, you know, it's not yeah. conscious, it's right. not conscious, but it's just a kind of, you know, they peg you kind of on the education, you know, material hierarchy. Um, and, you know, you drop a couple of runs if you've got that heavy right. accent.
0: Yeah. Which is always kind of fascinating to me because if you think about it, a monolingual person has a different experience of the world than someone who may speak more than one language. It's, yeah, that that particular piece of judgment is always a little eyebrow-raising for me, because I'm like, you know, as someone yeah. who does not actually speak Chinese well, when I've tried to navigate in Chinese, I'm like, wow. Wow. <laughs> I don't even sound like a toddler. I sound like an American who really is just completely out of her league. There are other places where I'm fine, don't misunderstand me, but like I specifically think about that because I have a cousin who likes to tease me. He's like, seriously, can we just yeah. stick to English, please? I'm like, yes,
1: yeah, <laughs> yes, <what> we can. <laughs> yes, but, absolutely. But at, least, at least you're trying, right? And I think one <sighs> of the things that happens to us Americans is that we have the great good fortune to speak the international language. And so everywhere we go, if we travel abroad, everyone bends over backwards to speak English to us. And it's very easy. To get into this mindset of thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so much better than everyone else because I can travel and my language is perfect and theirs isn't. And indeed, it's not till you think, well, how good is my Russian actually that you realize, wow, they're (laughs) actually doing an amazing job and I am judging them, um, you know, maybe unfairly.
0: What I'm hoping happens too with this book, though, because I think you do some unexpected things with translation and belonging and identity and all. that I think it might be a surprise. Like no one's asking to be fed their cultural vegetables, right? Like it's not like you're, you've are you written a polemic or anything like that, but this is stuff we should be thinking about and talking about. And um, That's right. And you did it a lot, obviously, in Sylvie Lee, which was a huge, huge hit and delighted that was a huge hit. But there has to be a tiny bit of pressure. I'm sorry to put you on the hot seat about this, but there has to be a tiny bit of pressure following up a book that was that big.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's always pressure, right? Ask any writer. It's like, if the book is big, there's pressure. If the book tanked, there's pressure. There's always, there's just always pressure, you know, and with the creative work, you never know how it's going to be received. You don't know, you know, kind of my fear about The Leftover Woman is that because it's such a propulsive story and it's built like a thriller and it's, you know, it's very, got really got that storyline kicking from the beginning to end that people will not see the things that you have just spoken about, that it actually really is a book about the fetishization of Asian women. It's about Mm -hmm. international adoption. It's about immigration and race and perception. And that's really the heart of the book for me. And of course, I um, I love the story. I love the characters. I really did fall in love with all the characters. And I think, you know, I want people to read it with joy just for the story. But I do hope that they'll pick up something else along the way um, about those deeper themes.
0: You know, girl in translation. It's can I just say none of this is autofiction? Like I feel like I have to say that quite frequently when an author borrows details from their own lives. I'm like, this is not autofiction, okay? Maybe there's some stuff, but it's not everything. Certainly, girl in translation. Also, mambo in Chinatown. I mean, you were a dance instructor. While you were also going to get your MFA, or you quit being a dance instructor to get your MFA? Remind I me quit being was. a okay. professional ballroom dancer okay.
1: to go um, get my MFA. Yes. Okay. That was my day job for writing, and then I actually I saw Helen Vendler, who's a professor at Harvard at the Seamus Heaney reading. Yeah. And she was like, Jean, what are you doing now?" And she'd been a mentor of mine when I was at Harvard, and I told her, and she was like, Jean you must return to the flock. And I thought, I I do, I do. I need to not be dancing with most of my life and writing for an hour every day. I need to actually be writing for most of my life.
0: But you got a pretty groovy novel out of it. I did, I mean, excuse me for stating the obvious, but you did get a pretty groovy novel out of it. And then we've got Searching for Sylvie Lee, obviously your third book, huge hit. Also though, based on a family tragedy. I mean, there is that one piece and you did have to flip Sylvie's gender in order, I mean, originally, Sylvie had been a man, your brother, your brother had died. And that's right, my
1: brother disappeared. So just for those who might not know, Searching for Sylvie Lee is about these two sisters. And what happens when the dazzling, brilliant, beautiful older sister, Sylvie, disappears while on a trip to the Netherlands and her shy, stuttering younger sister, Amy has to pull herself together and figure out what happened to her beloved older sister. And that searching for Sylvie Lee was inspired by the real life disappearance of my brilliant older brother Kwan. And I was, you know, the loser sister who had to kind of pull myself together and try to, you know, Can figure we out what the dreamy little sister. I mean, okay, <laughs> no. so here's the thing.
0: You are not, I get it. Like you're not the perfect Chinese daughter. Like these things happen. No. I, I know for a fact you can't cook. I love it when you <laughs> you have, you have these stories of when you try to cook, and I'm like, please just stop. please just i love you you do not need to do this please just stop he was like can we go out we don't need to eat in your apartment can we can we just go out out? seriously (laughs) seriously we have a reservation are you kidding me we do (laughs) but it's wild like there are these expectations right like you went to harvard to study physics and every time i think of that i'm just like huh (laughs) we really do like there are some of us who buy into that whole we've got to do You know the consulting, the accounting, the sciences stuff, and some of us aren't built for that. Like some of us are just not built for it. (laughs) There's a reason I'm a bookseller.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you are brilliant, Miwa. Let's not. Let's not. Right. Okay. But I mean, I have to say that in I had kind of the opposite of Tiger parents, and that's one of the reasons. That's one of the inspirations for the leftover women, because I grew up in a family where um, there was a lot of love. There definitely, I was cherished and loved. But girls did not need to go to college. I mean, girls were kind of meant to grow up and get married, and it was unspoken. But, you know, basically, my choices were a life at the factory, you know, at the sweatshop in Chinatown. But it was very, very lucky. They were hoping to find a man willing to marry me, which they despaired of due to my, like, dreamy habits and horrible cooking and disastrous, like, taking apart machines when I was, you know, bored. So, you know, they despaired of that, but that was the hope was to maybe find somebody. And then the unspoken, you know, check was then you give up your career, you bear sons for him, only sons, and you take care of him and the family. And I saw this choice very clearly. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to go to Harvard instead. And that's what I wound up doing. You know, it was a decision I made when I was seven years old and I had my whole life planned out to go there because i knew it was the only school my parents had ever heard of and i knew they would give you a full ride if i got in and right. i could not afford to go to any place that wouldn't cover basically mm-hmm. almost everything so yeah but that was uh, my decision
0: wait you went to hunter the high school hunter okay i mean education is the thing that helped you change everything It it was, it absolutely was.
1: And I mean, I struggled in school, you know, don't Mm. get me wrong. Like I didn't speak English and it was not like a Disney fairy tale with the kind teacher when I did not speak English and was nobody and was poor and had weird clothes and weird hair and didn't know how to get along with the other kids. I mean, you know, there were teachers that just gave me big red X's and zeros on all of my tests. Didn't matter that it was because I couldn't understand the directions. And I remember, you know being in school and like looking at the higher level readers and being like, mm-hmm. Oh, I wish I could be like in a better reading group than the lowest one and just not not being able to do it. But indeed, I mean, I was really lucky that I started doing better once I started learning English. and I tested into Hunter College High School, which is a public school for um, gifted kids on the. Par with Stuyvesant and Bronx Science, and they're you know, they've been wonderful to me. Hunter, also the alumni association, etc. But yeah, I really started finding myself at Hunter,
0: and then later on at Harvard. Do you remember being a young reader, and and finally sort of? I mean, we all have those books, right, that we walk around with that have sort of imprinted themselves on our DNA. And I have some that are great, and somewhere I'm like, yeah, I was 18 when I read that, but uh, there's no going back. I mean, it's. It's now part of the ecosystem, right? And, and some stuff does not age well. Oh, wow. Some stuff does not age well. But like, what are some of those books for you? Especially coming to English a little later. I mean, it's, it's a really different experience. Like, I can't read in Japanese. I mean, I, I know if I'm watching a film that's dubbed into English, it, my brain can't process it because I'm watching mouths move. And I know the mouths are not saying the things that are coming out in English. So I actually can only watch Japanese movies that are subtitled because mm-hmm. I get a headache. Like I, right. my head can't do it, but I certainly can't read a novel in Japanese. So
1: yeah, it's incredible how fluency works, you know, yeah, because right? of course I, I I did move to the Netherlands as an adult. And <laughs> I, I know one, one of the things in my life but um, and I do speak Dutch, which is a part right. of Searching for Sylvie Lees and yep. Sylvie is thinking in Dutch in that so book. So not
0: an easy language to learn. No, Dutch it was particularly really hard.
1: It was so hard. It was so hard. I used to call it like monster talk. It was like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, I have no idea what they just said. But I hear you. I hear you because my Dutch is good. You know, yeah. it's fluent and not, I mean, it's fluent. But. I'm still not a native speaker, and right. things like novels are hard because right. the language, the structure of the sentences, it's just much more difficult. And I can follow like a news show really easily, but once to get to real colloquialisms and drama, I'm like, was that a dirty joke? I was that something about St. Peter? Like, was that religiously dirty? What are, what are we doing here? You know, it's it, it's hard. And that, you know, kind of makes me appreciate language and culture in uh, in my own mm-hmm.
0: writing. Okay, but let's go back to books for a second. Let's talk about some of the Touchstone books. Oh, yeah, books. yeah. Oh, sorry. Touchstone books. No, it's, it's, um, all part so, of the con- it's all part of the conversation. But yes, um, I do um, want to talk about Touchstone books for a second.
1: So, you know, I I didn't speak English. And I, I desperately wanted to speak English. And then I discovered my local public library. And that was life changing. I mean, it was life changing because, you know, the library for me was not only, of course, a a mental refuge, but it was also a physical refuge because I was living in this rundown, roach infested apartment that wasn't even heated. So in New York City. So the library was clean. It was warm. It was filled with kind librarians who came to you with books. And I read every single book in the children's section of my public library from A to Z. And I started, of course, not in such a methodical way. But by the time, you know, I was a little bit older, I had read literally every single book. But the books that I remember the best and I loved the most were, you know, things like Anne of Green Gables, you know, it's like, I mean, those types of books, it's like, even though I'm not a redheaded girl in the country, I felt isolated and alone and not connected. And those themes are universal. Um, And I think it's true some books don't age as well as we might like them to. But I do believe in all books. I think that
0: if they give you something, you can actually almost just let the rest go. I genuinely believe that there is a book for every reader. And, you know, when I hear people say, I don't like to read, my first thought is your grownups failed you. And my second thought is you just haven't met the book that is going to break your heart open or your mind mm-hmm. open or whatever, whatever thing you need to have shift in you. You just haven't met that book yet. There's some stuff that I read that it, some people would consider canon. Other people would not. You know, you just, right. we evolve as people, right? Like reading is an active connection. Right. And the thing about
1: us is that as, you know, women of color, there were no books about people like us. Like there just were not. I mean, the publishing world has opened up actually very recently. You know, when I was writing Girl in Translation, there was an agent who told me there is no market for this book. And the reason unspoken, I am really pretty sure is that it's about a girl of color, it's about an Asian American immigrant. And it was not, and it published in 2010. I mean, it's not that long ago. It's a pretty recent phenomenon that people are realizing there is a huge thirst and market for books about people um, from other countries, you know, with other identities. That's why we read, right? To live another life. That's why we become
0: enriched by reading. Yeah, and you play with class in all of your books. You play with class, and is there anything more American than class? I'm not sure there is. (laughs) Like that, Mm -hmm. we need to have those conversations, right? Like, I mean, especially in Leftover Woman, there is access. There is Uh, there's a nepo baby, which makes me laugh, and I really just like saying that phrase. It (laughs) it makes me giggle, and that's terrible. But (laughs) there's a nepo baby, and people will figure out who it is, and it's fine. But to be able to move between those spaces, right? Like to be able mm-hmm. to capture what you need to and how you need to do it and, and how the interactions happen. Were you able to surprise yourself at all while you were writing the leftover woman or did you Oh, kind of-
1: oh absolutely I mean absolutely I, because I, you know, I re- normally I really have a very clear idea of the ending when I start a book. But this one I kept changing what I thought the ending was going to be. Oh um, wow. Yeah, okay. because of course there are a lot of different ways it can work out with, you know, two moms, two worlds mm. and one impossible choice, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like there it can there are a lot of ways that can go. So yeah, it was really surprising and I think I was I've been lucky in that I have both had that working class immigrant experience but have also have had access to a, more privileged friends lives to see how someone like Rebecca might live and the things she might be obsessed with and the things that mean, you know, matter Mm -hmm. to her. And so it's fun being able to take the reader along to all these different worlds. So you're in, you know, working class Chinatown one day and then you're in this penthouse the next, and then you're in the publishing world and the Mm -hmm. Frankfurt book fair where all kinds of things can (laughs) happen, Um, you know, and you're fighting for a top author, and yet your personal life with your beautiful, gorgeous husband is falling apart. You know, so that was really, really fun to write.
0: Yeah. And on behalf of all of the tiny girls who were made to take ballet when it was really not their thing, thank you so much for including that. Because, <laughs> oh, my mom wanted, oh, my mom wanted it to take. She's like, I'm not sending you so you can learn how to dance. I would just like you to be able to. M-. I was three. <laughs> I was three. I didn't have any opinions about anything other than. Why am I doing this? <laughs> like I was the kid dancing to the left when everyone went to the right. I'm like, I, <laughs> I love it. I got nothing here. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> even you, even as a toddler, you have to own I mean, mind. You had to own mind. You knew where you wanted to go. Right?
0: Yeah, I just also pink, not my co- like. So many things <laughs> where it's like, why are you making oh, me do this? Wrong. <laughs> even asking questions at three. Going, yeah, this I don't. Mm. And the big t- Oh, yeah. There's a whole pack. I've seen the photos. I have no memory of this. Obviously, I've seen the photos. like, Yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. And of course, we're bumping up against time. But hey, what have you been reading lately? What have you been recommending to people? What do you love? Who do you love? Let's talk about some other books for a second. Angie Kim has a new novel coming out. I think Alifair Burke's working on some stuff. They're oh, co-books. yeah, yeah.
1: You will, I mean, Angie Kim's novel, ha- Happiness Falls, is a beautiful book. And the funny thing is that Angie and I um, actually wrote our books almost together. Oh, so wow. The left- okay. Yes. So The Leftover Woman, uh, I was working on The Leftover Woman while she was working on Happiness Falls. And we actually, we texted each other or spoke on the phone daily and we exchanged pages weekly oh, while wow. we were writing okay. our two books. So it's really okay. exciting that our books are coming out kind of so close to each yeah. other. And, you know, I mean, we're both fast readers, so we get the pages, we read them, and then we talk about them immediately. And it was, you know, it was really a great experience. I mean, there are other books that have just come out uh, in the summer, like Danielle Chusoni's The Puzzle Master is a book I absolutely love. It's working on different levels of, you know, being really a thriller, but also doing very interesting things with history, etc. Um, Sarah Develo. Broadway Butterfly uh, came out this past summer. Beautiful, true crime novel set in the 20s. And uh, Wendy Walker, What Remains. It's a book that I really love. Really wonderful book about a woman who, a a female detective who saves a man's life. And um, then he starts stalking her. And it's like, oh my God, what what do you do then? So yeah, a lot, I I love, uh, there's so many books that are coming out that I love with a, you know, that have that wonderful storyline, that's mm-hmm. a propulsive storyline, and yet are so much more
0: than that. Well, that's the thing. It sounds like character-driven. I mean, I know from reading your work that obviously the characters are the thing that come first, but it sounds like character is the thing that really drives the reading experience for you.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is, it's all about these characters. It's all about Jasmine and her you know, desire to have her baby back and then struggling as a young, beautiful woman in um, New York City, kind of cast adrift and trying to survive. And, uh, you know, trying to find love at the same time. And then Rebecca, who is privileged and married, but has this perfect life that is falling apart. And then the beautiful little child, who's kind of caught in between them. And you know, what happens to that child?
0: And who does she belong with, ultimately? Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I can't believe I just described a complex story as fun. But it is as far as a reading experience goes. It zips along. I cared about the characters. The kid is great. I don't really like necessarily children in books unless like, you know, little kids who sound like adults. This kid does not sound like an adult. This kid sounds like a tiny little child. It's just like, what is happening? The creepy doll. I thought the creepy doll was a nice touch. <laughs> What do you want to make sure that people know about Jasmine or Rebecca or any, any part of The Leftover Woman? What are you hoping readers will bring? Well, I would say
1: that, you know, what's something I've heard from some people who, let's say, have adopted a Chinese mm-hmm. daughter themselves yeah. is that they are afraid to read the book. Like they want to read it, but they're a little bit scared mm-hmm. that maybe it will devastate them. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you, it will not devastate you, whichever side of the argument you may want to be on. I think that it's really The Leftover Woman is really a story more about the things we have in common than the issues that drive Mm -hmm. us apart. So it does touch upon many themes for book clubs like, you know, fetishization and who uh, who has the right to an adopted child and race and class. But ultimately, I think the answer that the book gives is that, you know, we are more than the things that divide us. We have, you know, we are actually the things that unite us and we can learn, you know, we can be flawed, deeply, deeply flawed. And yet we can grow uh, beyond our
0: mistakes and become better people. And that seems like a perfect place to wrap this episode. Jean Kwok, thank you so much. The Leftover Woman is out now. If you haven't read Searching for Sylvie Lee or Mambo in Chinatown or Girl in Translation, they're all available in paperback. Thanks
2: so much.
1: Thank you so much, Leah
2: Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Leftover Woman. I'm Mark at My Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, but I have two fantastic booksellers who are going to take it away, and I'm going to have Madison kick us off. Madison, go right ahead.
3: Hello, I am Madison. I am joining you from My Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles, and the book I have to recommend today is Greek Lessons by Hong Kong. I chose this book because I think it's a really beautiful story that kind of ignites all of your senses because at the core it's about a man and a woman. The main woman you meet um, she is in Seoul and she is taking Greek lessons, but you learn that she is slowly losing her voice. Then you have the Greek teacher who day yes. by day is losing his sight. So these two kind of become like intrigued by one another and they meet and through their meeting you learn about each of their like collective kind of pains. So for the woman, she just lost her mother. She is in a custody battle trying to get her 9-year-old son back and like him for example, he has the pain of having to be like split between two cultures. They take both their struggles and come together and through this story like he gets to see kind of through her eyes and she gets to live kind of through like his voice and it's so interwoven in such a beautiful way that you see their struggles kind of come together and how two people through pain can really like come and overcome obstacles and really get enjoyment and fulfillment out of life. It kind of shows kind of like how darkness, when we're all stuck in like a really dark place, how you have to bring yourself, but also how you can ask for help to kind of bring you back to that light. And once again, I just really like how this book kind of ignites the use of all your senses and just how it is written in how she uses descriptors you get like, you can like, I, it's weird to say you can almost like hear the book, but like when I was reading it in my head, like I could just like hear these two characters. So I really liked how those senses were ignited. And that is why I chose Greek Lessons by Han Kong. But that is all I have for you. I know Mary has a really good pick. So I'm excited to hear about it, Mary.
4: Hey, Madison. I'm joining every everybody today from my Barnes and Noble in Texas. So when I was reading The Leftover Woman, I decided to pick a classic. And so my pick for the TBR top-off is the Joy Luck Club, you know, the mothers and daughters and the alternating narrators and all the complications of relationships between families and things like that. So, and when you reread things, you know, as an adult versus when you read them, have to read them for school, you pick up on so much more. And so rereading this was so, so much of a joy. The Joy Luck Club is the story of mothers and daughters of the Wu, the Zhang, the St. Clair and the Sioux families, Cisco to china during and before world war ii before the mothers immigrated and it's the story of you know these all these mothers and daughters want to be seen not just seen as a daughter not just seen as a mother but seen as themselves you know the mothers want to be seen as for themselves and for more than the sacrifices that they made to get you know to the united states and things like that and the daughters want to be seen for just themselves and that you know they are living the american dream that you work so hard for and things I love the alternating narrators because you get such a rich perspective. My pick for Keep Your Top Off is The Joylette Club by Amy Tan.
2: Fantastic yeah. picks, both of you. I do <laughs> want to give a little shout out to Greek Lessons because I think it is my favorite book cover of the year. I love that author in general, but that book, just the cover just will pull you in in the best possible way. Uh, but that is all we have for today. Thank you both. And thank you, listeners. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. Madison, where can we find you?
3: You can find me at my store, which is BN Events Grove.
2: And Mary, where can we track you down?
3: You can find me at my store at BN Beaumont TX.
2: And you can find me at BN Westchester. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please
0: rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.